Congregation, please turn your Bibles in the first place this afternoon to Isaiah chapter 40. If you're visiting with us this afternoon, we're continuing on in our series of the Belgic Confession. And this afternoon, we come to the first of two sermons on the Word of God. So in that light, we're going to look at a few places from God's Word this afternoon. First of all, from Isaiah chapter 40, and then two brief passages from the New Testament as well. Isaiah chapter 40, the first eight verses, where God says, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Now turning into the New Testament, we turn first of all to 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Apostle Paul's words to Timothy. Second Timothy three verses fourteen to sixteen. Second Timothy three at verse fourteen. This too is God's holy word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Then lastly, let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Second Peter 1, beginning at verse 16, after the Apostle Paul has urged the saints to make their calling and election sure, to trust in the divine power of God that's been given to them, he says in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were there with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, No prophecy of Scripture comes by someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
This is God's holy word. May he bless it to us as we meditate upon it this afternoon. Let's turn also in our forms and prayers books to Articles 3 through 5 of our Confession of Faith, page 154 in the forms and prayers books. We've already learned to confess who God is and how He reveals Himself to us, namely through creation, general revelation, also through His Word, special revelation. And now we confess this about that special revelation in Article 3, the written Word of God. We confess that this Word of God was not sent or delivered by the will of men, but that holy men of God spoke, being moved by the Holy Spirit, as Peter says. Afterwards... Our God, because of the special care He has for us and for our salvation, commanded His servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit this revealed word to writing. He Himself wrote with His own finger the two tables of the law. Therefore, we call such writings holy and divine scriptures. We include in the holy scriptures the two volumes of the Old and New Testaments. They are canonical books with which there is no quarrel at all. In the church of God, the list is as follows. In the Old Testament, the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, the two books of Samuel, the two books of Kings, the two books of Chronicles, the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, the book of Job, the Psalms, the three books of Solomon, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Songs, the five books of the four major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the, 12 of, and the 12 books of the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And the New Testament, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Acts of the Apostles, the 13 letters of the Apostle Paul, to the Romans, the two letters to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, the two letters to the Thessalonians, the two letters to Timothy, to Titus, Philemon the letter to the Hebrews, the seven letters of the other apostles, one of James, two of Peter, three of John, one of Jude, and the revelation of the apostle John. We receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt all things contained in them, not so much because the church receives and approves them as such, but above all, because the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God, and also because they prove themselves to be from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that things predicted in them do happen. This the church of Christ does confess and believe throughout the world. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'd like to draw your attention from the very outset of the sermon this evening, what we just read from the second paragraph of Article 3 of our Confession. Because there we discover from the very outset that whenever we talk about the Word of God, we're simultaneously talking about the love of God. When we talk about the Word of God, about its nature, about its character, we're talking about the love of God and the special care that God had for us and for our salvation. For God so loved the world, we might say tonight, that he not only gave his only begotten son, but God so loved the world that he also caused the testimony of his son to be written down. 
In fact, if you turn to the last pages of John's gospel, you'll discover this very thing. Why did the Holy Spirit move the Apostle John to, to bear witness the person work of Christ in the way that he did? We discover the answer at the end of John chapter 20, where the apostle tells us, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written down so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, boys and girls, whenever we talk about the word of God, we're simultaneously talking about the love of God. The special care that God had for us and for our salvation when he commanded his servants, the prophets and apostles, to commit his revealed word to writing. We're talking about the love of God that we could sing at the start of our worship service. His word to Jacob, he declares, to them his judgment show. To Israel, his chosen race, he makes his statutes known. No other nation is so blessed. They do not know his law. O Zion, praise the Lord your God. His praise proclaim with awe. When we talk about the word of God, we're talking about the love of God. We begin our discussion here this evening because doing so helps us to see all the more clearly than just how horrible a thing it is to reject the word of God. When we bear in mind the fact that the word of God is simultaneously connected to, to the love of God, we see just how ugly and foolish a thing it is to, to deny the truth of the word of God. We've been seeing this very thing in our study of 1 Kings, haven't we? In the last number of weeks, as, and as we saw once again this morning, as we've seen Israel's downward spiral and, and to sin and rebellion, we've also seen how, how rejecting the word of God always leads to this judgment and ruin. We've seen how rejecting the word of the Lord not only results in a parched land, but also in a parched life, as we heard this morning. Because Israel forsook the, Lord, the word of the Lord God, gave them over to the desires of their hearts, and they began to experience all the misery that, that rejecting God's word brings. This is the way it's been ever since the serpent slithered his way into the garden, isn't it? When Satan came to, to tempt the man and the woman, how did he do so? He, he did so by seeking to attack and to undermine the word of God by saying, did God really say? If you were to turn to the opening verse of Genesis chapter 3, you'd discover that that God's word is referred to three times in the opening verses. The first time, Satan questions it. The second time, Eve adds to it. And the third time, Satan denies it altogether, saying, you will not surely die if you eat the fruit of the tree. And he alleges that God was not really who he said he was, alleging that God was a liar. And sadly, Satan succeeded in that attack and assault on the word of God, so that we know live in a world in which P.Y.D. Young says many hammers have attempted to, to break the anvil of the word. Ever since the fall into sin, man has sought to deal a death blow to Christianity by attacking its foundations. And this congregation is why out of 37 articles of our confession, five of them are dedicated specifically to the word of God. Because so much of the battle for the Christian faith hinges on the word, on its infallibility, on its authority, on its sufficiency. For if the Bible has the authoritative and abiding word of God to man has been removed, says de Young, the life of the church is imperiled. For having no word from above to sustain her, she can no longer speak with conviction in the marketplaces of life. We've seen how many churches have been imperiled by this very thing, as this 
battle for the truth that we confess here in Articles 3 through 5 is, is no longer a battle that's only waged outside the church, but increasingly within the church. Many of us will remember very well that when it came to the formation of our own churches, it wasn't just because the church has said women can be in office, but much before that, they had, they had begun to say that God speaks out of both sides of his mouth, that the word of God is not so clear on things, that we can pick and choose, and it was really at that, that issue. Did God really say? That was at the heart of it all. Well, thankfully, congregation, we can be sure tonight that in the midst of this battle, and as all these attacks from without as well as from within are levied against the word, what Isaiah said, something that remains true today, all men are like grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. And so as we seek to understand the nature and character of this written word, I'd like for us to consider three things together this evening. Considering in the first place, the author of the word, and then secondly, the aim of the word, and then finally, the authority of the word. When the apostle Peter was seeking to minister to the Christians of his day, we find in his second epistle how great was his concern for the word of the Lord. From the very outset in verse 16 of chapter 1, he, he begins to remind them that the Christian faith is not consistent in following mere myths or fables, but that all the things they had heard from the apostles concerning Jesus Christ were entirely true. And he reminds them in verses 17 and following that Christ really was the one whom all the, the prophets had foretold throughout the centers of the Old Testament. That when God said from the mountain, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, God was saying, here he is. Here's, here's the fulfillment of all these words. Even those things we heard from Isaiah chapter 40 were written concerning him. In the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the message of the gospel has been declared to his people that that their warfare is ended, that their iniquity has been pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand a double portion for all her sins. As God continues to speak tenderly to Jerusalem, to speak tenderly to his church today through the written word of God. And so the Apostle Peter also reminds his readers that we as New Testament Christians have this prophetic word more fully confirmed, saying that we do well then to to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place, knowing that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is precisely what we confess here in Article 3 of our confession, that God's Word is just that. It is His Word. To be sure, he, he used the thoughts and, and the hands of men to commit that word to writing. But because of the special care he had for us, he himself is one who moved those men to, to write what they wrote. This is what Peter has set out to defend, that God's word comes from God himself. We discover in chapter 2 that Peter is in fact writing this letter in response to attacks that have come against God's word through all these false teachers that have arisen in their midst. Immediately after saying that no uh, prophecy is ever produced by the will of man, but man spoke from God, being carried along by the Spirit, he says immediately after that, that false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, 
bring upon themselves swift destruction. And so Peter is seeking to call these first century Christians to continue building their life on the solid foundation of the Word of God. He is calling them to to cling to the Word of God, recognizing the reality that that such writings are indeed holy and divine Scripture. This is what Peter is calling the church to do today by the Spirit of Christ, to, to build our lives in this Word, to cling to this Word, to recognize that the Word of God, the writings of the Word, are able to make us wise unto salvation. Because as Paul has said, all Scripture has been breathed out by God Himself. Just as God wrote with His own finger the two tables of the law, so too the, the fingerprints of God on every page of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Every book, every chapter, every verse is, is warm with God's own breath. Every book. Every chapter, every verse has been written down in order that we might know the God who made us, nor that we might learn to love the God who redeemed us. You recall that's what we confessed last time in Article 2, that although the creation itself reveals the invisible things of God, the heavens de- declare the handiwork of God, the skies proclaim His handiwork. Now, although those things are enough to leave man without excuse, God has made Himself known to us more openly by His holy and divine Word, as much as we need in this life for His glory and for the salvation of His own. And so very frequently throughout the Old Testament, God charged the prophets not only to proclaim His revelation by by word of mouth, which they did, but also to commit that revelation to writing as well. In Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, for example, Moses was commanded by God to write down that account between Israel and Amalek and how God had given Israel victory over the Amalekites. And why? So that Israel would never forget what God had done for them. And so that Israel and the whole world would remember that God's curse rests upon those who stand in the way of his word. That, of course, was what happened with the Amalekites. They were the first to, to go against in combat against Israel. They came out of Egypt. They stood as, as an eternal testament of those who stand against the word of God. And so God said to Moses, write this account down. He said, Israel, never forget my curse against those who will stand against the word of the Lord. In Exodus chapters 24 and 34, Moses was once again charged with the duty of writing down the laws and statutes of the covenant that God had made with his people. And why, says God, so that Israel might know and never forget how to live with God and how to live for God. In a very similar way, all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets, we we come across those phrases like, like, thus says the Lord, or or, the word of the Lord came to me. Or as the prophet Isaiah said, say these things, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. All throughout the New Testament, how often don't we hear Jesus and the apostles saying things like, it is written. It was written long ago. It has been written. And when they say these things, what they're indicating is that the Old Testament, although made up of various parts and written by, at various times by various peoples, are yet one organic whole whose author is God himself. And this is what we confess here in Article 3, that the Bibles in our hands did not come merely by the will of man, 
but because of the special care that God had for us and wanting to save us and wanting to bring us to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of his love that he had for us, he commanded his servants to to commit his revealed word to writing. As Isaiah wrote those words long ago to the people of Israel, comfort, comfort my people, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. God also had us in mind, saying, write these things down as an eternal testimony so that they, my people might know me throughout the ages, so that my people might might believe on the name of my Son and so become recipients of everlasting life and glory. This congregation at the very bottom is, is the aim of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. The aim of God's Word is, is always to direct our eyes and to direct our hearts beyond the words and beyond the Word to the author. To be sure, for many years, God's special revelation was handed down through oral tradition all the way up to the days of Moses. But to quote Herman Bovink, when people began to spread out over the face of the earth and when they fell into all kinds of idolatry and superstition, the oral tradition was not good enough. God wanted to save for himself a people. He wanted to have a relationship with his people. And so he called his servants to commit that word to writing. And so beginning with Moses in the first five books of the Bible and ending with the Apostle John in the last book of the Bible in Revelation, God moved these men to commit that will to writing so that we now have in our possession the two volumes of the Old and New Testament, each one bearing witness. Each one is a testament, a testimony to who God is and what God has done. And so we do not quarrel with them or seek to undermine them, Article 4. Rather, as we confess in Article 5, we receive all these books and these only as holy and canonical for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. And we believe without a doubt everything contained in them. Boys and girls, why has God given us the Bible? Why has he done this? Why has he committed his word to writing? God has done so for the regulating, founding, and establishing of our faith. This, boys and girls, is God's purpose and aim in writing the Bible to teach us everything we need to know to live and to die in the joy of Christian comfort. This is why mom and dad are taking you to church tonight. This is why mom and dad read the Bible around your dinner tables and read those Bible stories over and over again, not just because God tells them to do it, but because they believe that God desires that you would come to know him. And you come to know him through his word. And so we receive the word of God to regulate every aspect of our lives. And we make the word of God the foundation upon which we build our lives rather than on the the sinking sands of the false ideologies of the world. Making use of the word of God, we we take here the apostle's warning in Romans chapter 12 where, where it is written, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. How do you discern what is the will of God? We discern what is the will of God through His Word. And so we make it our resolve to establish ourselves more firmly in this Word, recognizing that 
That God's word is indeed that lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And as we grow in sanctification, we, we learn to say, or we ought to learn to say more and more with the psalmist, Lord, I have hidden your word in my heart. I love your word. And I've hidden your word in your heart because I don't want to sin against you. This is at the, at the heart of Paul's instruction to Timothy in the second letter. Here in 2 Timothy 3, Paul is urging Timothy to, to continue in what he has learned and firmly believed, having become acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make him wise for salvation through faith in Christ. Saying all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. As we know from the opening words of this letter, from the earliest possible age, Timothy's life had been thoroughly grounded and saturated with the Word of God as his mother and grandmother taught him the substance of the Old Testament Scriptures. And they taught him who God was and what God had done and what God calls of us to live for him in grateful obedience. And with the coming of Christ, Timothy also came to see that everything that he had learned in the Old Testament found its culmination in Christ Jesus. And so now that he's been set apart for the work of ministry by the, by the laying on of hands, he's reminded by Paul to remember that this word has been, that he's been commissioned to proclaim is the very word of God, that it is the power of God into salvation for all who will believe. To remember that faith comes by hearing and, and hearing by the word of God. To remember that the words of scripture being warm with God's own breath are indeed profitable for teaching for approval and correction, for training and righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. With these words, Paul intends to cause Timothy and us to recognize that the word of God serves both to, to ground us in the truth of the gospel as well to, to spur us on to live life in light of the gospel. In other words, the aim of the word is to direct both our doctrine as well as our duty, to direct both our creed as well as our conduct. And so what the Apostle John says at the start of his own book, the book of Revelation, might very well be written over the whole Bible. Blessed is the man who reads aloud the words of this book, and blessed are those who hear, and to keep what is written in it for the time is near. Do you believe that promise, congregation? Blessed are those who pick up the book and read. It's reminded of the early church father, St. Augustine, and the manner in which he describes his own conversion experience and his confessions. He writes, When a deep consideration had from the secret bottom of my soul drawn together and heaped up all my misery in the sight of my heart, there arose a mighty storm, bringing a mighty shower of tears. And so I cast myself down, I know not how, under a certain fig tree, giving full vent to my tears. And the floods of mine eyes gushed out an acceptable sacrifice to the Lord. Then he describes how in the turmoil of his soul, he found himself crying out the words of Psalm 13, which we read just a few moments ago. How long, O Lord? How, how long will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I... Take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day. Gosson continues, I sent up these sorrowful words. How long? How long? Tomorrow? Tomorrow? Why not now? Why, not? Why is it not this hour an end to my uncleanness? 
So I was speaking and weeping in the most bitter contrition of my heart when, lo, I heard from a neighboring house a voice as of a boy or a girl I do not know, chanting and oft repeating, take up and read, take up and read, take up and read. Instantly, Augustine writes, my countenance was altered. Checking the torrent of my tears, I arose, interpreting it to be none other than a command from God to open the book and to read the first chapter I should find. Eagerly then I returned to the place where Elpius was sitting, for there I had laid the volume of the Apostle Paul where I arose thence. I seized, I opened, and in silence I read that section on which my eyes first fell. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in revelry, revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its desires. Romans 13, verses 13 to 14. No further would I read, he writes, nor needed I read. For instantly at the end of this sentence, by a light as it were of serenity infused into my heart, and all the darkness of doubt vanished away. This congregation is the aim of the word to cause the darkness of doubt to vanish away. To find the answer to the question, how long, O Lord? Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of the book. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. By feeding upon the truth of God's word, says one pastor, the believer is strengthened in conviction and disciplined in character to walk well-pleasing to the Lord. For the word is living and active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joint and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart, Hebrews 4. In its penetrating light, says P.Y.D. Young, we learn to know ourselves as never did before. The deepest secrets of our souls are laid bare and judged. Here we are confronted with our sin and our need for salvation. Here in the word, we are prompted to flee for refuge to the only name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. The word of God exhibits the glorious work of redemption, reconciliation in Christ, and it assures us that all who come to God in his name will never be cast out. Some of us are here tonight and we feel as though the Lord is very far from us. Some of us share the psalmist's cry, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? But the author of the word of God has said, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Boys and girls, where is God to be found? God is to be found in his word. That's where we find him. If you feel as though the Lord is far away, he's right there in his word. Warm with his own breath as you pick it up and read. That's where we find him. And so through the reading of this word, as we allow him to speak to us, as we speak to him, that's where we discover the reality that he is nearer and closer to us than we can fully begin to imagine. Some of us feel as though the Lord is far away, but we haven't read our Bibles in weeks. And we wonder Why? Why? 
For God so loved the world, he so loved you and me that he wrote a book. In order that we might know him, find life and peace in Christ's name. And for this reason, brothers and sisters, we believe without a doubt everything contained in these canonical books. Not so much because the church receives them or approves them as such, but because above all else the Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that they are from God. And also because the books themselves carry within themselves the evidence that they are from God. For even the blind themselves are able to see that things predicting them do happen. The Word of God carries with it the authority of God Himself. What the Word of God says is what God says. So there is no higher authority. There is no other foundation upon which to build the Christian faith and the Christian life. Rejecting the idea of Rome, that human tradition mediated through the Pope and divine revelation share equal authority. Our confession recognized what Isaiah recognized. No, all men are like grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God stands forever. And so we receive the word as our highest authority for the regulation, foundation, and confirmation of our faith, and we place nothing else anywhere beside it. We receive it as the word from the king, as his faithful subjects, who desire to do the king's will. To quote P.Y. Young again, in this fallen world marked by spiritual and intellectual confusion, faith needs a norm by which we can judge both itself and all things truly. And that norm is the word of God. That's the measure. That's what we call them holy and, and canonical books. The canon speaks to the list, but also the, the measure. That's the, that's the measure that we use to, to judge truth from the lie, the word of God. So we need to recognize and believe in our hearts this evening that in a world of lies, in a world where where Satan seeks to undermine the word of God at every turn. God's word is truth, as Jesus said in his high priestly prayer. As he prayed for his disciples, as he prayed for the world, praying that they would be a people of the word, sanctify them in the truth, O Father, for your word is truth. His word is totally trustworthy and reliable, such that we can stake our lives upon it, as we heard the widow from Zarephath doing this morning. Only God could have produced a book such as this. As you read the Old Testament scriptures and see the manner in which they, they spoke of Christ and see the manner in which Christ fulfilled those writings, Isaiah 53, for example, the man of sorrows acquainted with grief. As you read the word of God, the books of, of wisdom like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and see how, how true they are to life, only God could have produced such a book. That is our only conclusion. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls. But the word of our God endures. It remains forever. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come before you again and give you thanks for your word. That you're a God who is not silent, but that you are a God who speaks to us, who speaks tenderly to us. And that because of the love that you had for us here in this place, because of the special care you had for our salvation, 
you moved men to commit your revealed word to writing as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for giving us a book that is warm with your own breath. Forgive us, Father, we neglect the book. When the book remains on the shelf in our homes as much as its contents remain on the shelf of our hearts, not readily accessible, not in frequent use. Father, if there are those of us here who feel as though you're far from us, may your spirit convict us tonight to flee to the word, to seek you until we find you with the promise that you gave to those in exile in the days of Jeremiah, that when you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you. May we be relentless in our belief of that promise, Father. May we not faint or grow weary of believing it and seeking you until we find you. Father, grant our congregation, our church, and our federation of churches Also the steadfastness to hold fast the word of truth. For congregation, we look at the for Lord, we look at the congregations and churches around us, and we see that so many have forsaken your word. And Lord, we look at the pews even in front of us and we see songbooks and no Bibles. And so, Father, we give you thanks for your faithfulness to us. That you have kept us faithful to your word. And we pray, Lord, that you'd give the same resolve to our children and to our children's children. There might always be a lampstand here in Vineland amongst the saints of adoration you are seeing until Christ comes. We pray, Lord, that he would come quickly, that he would come even tonight, that we would see him face to face. But until then, Lord, if he tarries, grant us to be faithful. For Jesus' sake, amen.